Sometime after his baptism, sometime after he'd been filled with the Holy Spirit, sometime after he'd faced the tempter, Jesus returned to Galilee and began to preach and teach in the synagogues. And Luke tells us he was praised by everyone, which is every preacher's secret dream, um, though more rare than snow in July. The synagogue has its roots in the interim period between the destruction of the first temple and the building of the second temple under King Herod. Synagogues were led by the laity, in Jesus' day most notably the Pharisees, and were placed places of religious education and debate. Any male present was free to pick up the scrolls and read and then offer commentary or reflections on the scriptures. And so Jesus, when he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. The crowd gathered in the synagogue would have understood what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the year of Jubilee, a year in which people were told to act as if their trust really was in God, the God who brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land, a year dedicated to forgiveness, a year for rest, for release, forgiveness of debts, rest from labor, and release from slaves. Long before Jesus ever preached in Nazareth, God was already well aware of the people's tendency to sin, the sin of pride, of living as if they were accountable only to themselves. God knew how quickly the people would forget just who it was who would brought them into the land. God knew how quickly they would begin to believe that they were the strong ones, they were the self-reliant ones, the self-redeeming ones, that they were the ones who'd created a people where there'd been no people before. God was well aware of the people's tendency to sin, the sin of greed, of the accumulation of wealth and the power that comes with it. God knew how quickly the strong would begin taking from the weak. God knew how quickly the people would exhaust the land. God knew how quickly there would be claims placed upon the land, claims of ownership, which excluded others from the land's fruitfulness. God was well aware of the people's tendency to sin, the sin of idolatry, of placing their faith in material possessions, God knew how quickly the people would begin to rely on their possessions to keep them secure. God knew how quickly the people would set everything else aside, including God, in their relentless pursuit of more wealth and more material security. God was well aware of the people's tendency to sin, the sin of violence, of doing whatever seemed necessary to prevent the loss of what had been accumulated. God knew how quickly the people would begin to destroy each other, with the rich and powerful building their houses on the backs of the poor and vulnerable. God knew how quickly the people would enslave those in debt, holding their children hostage until the parents paid it off. God was well aware of the people's tendency to sin. And so God, in infinite mercy, presented the people with a plan for creating a just and peaceful nation. All they must do is listen and then follow the directions. And part of those directions are found in Leviticus 25, a chapter which reveals God's intention for economic justice in the land of this newly created people. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelite people and say to them. So begins the first proclamation of the year of Jubilee. 
God does the proclaiming. This is an act of God. And that's an important thing to remember, particularly when we read further and discover the economic implications of Jubilee. This is an idea straight from the mouth of God. As followers of God, the Israels had to take that commandment of Jubilee seriously because that commandment came directly from God. And it came from God before the people entered the land promised to them. Reading this text from our vantage point, it's easy to get tangled up in the implications of imposing jubilee on an already established economic reality, whether our own or that of ancient Israel. But the Lord spoke to the Israelites before they entered the land, before they were a nation. God offers the people a plan for creating a culture, a nation of justice and peace, a nation holy and acceptable to God. They were, in effect, starting from scratch. Before this, they were no people but they were about to become a people. And so God gave them this blueprint. God showed them how to make the very best nation possible. And again, all the people needed to do was listen and then follow the directions. God begins by commanding a Sabbath year for the land itself. Every seventh year, the fields were to lie fallow. No planting or harvesting was to be done in that that Sabbath year. The people would be free to glean whatever the land spontaneously produced that year but they were not to force the land into production. Now, one can hear the objection, right? Wait a minute, Lord, it's all well and good to let the land rest occasionally, but what will we eat that year? Well, not to worry, says the Lord. Trust me, I will bless you with such a bountiful harvest in the sixth year that you'll have plenty of food for the seventh. And in fact, the harvest will be so bountiful that you'll still be eating that food into the eighth year. The land is mine. I am the Lord, your God. You can trust me to provide for you when you follow my commandments. And so God told the people to declare a Sabbath for the land. Then the Lord commanded the people to count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. That's seven times seven. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded aloud on the tenth day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land, And you shall hallow the 50th year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. The year of jubilee, the year when the ram's horn sounds, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, God's plan for wiping the slate clean, for preventing human sin from creating a nation of perpetual inequity, God's plan for leveling the field once every generation, preventing the accumulation of wealth and power in a few hands and a permanent cycle of poverty and despair for everybody else. Once every generation, every 50 years, everyone would be freed to return to their places and begin again. So what did this Sabbath of Sabbaths, what did this jubilee look like? Well, first again, God commands a Sabbath rest for the land. And it was also a year of rest for the people, a rest from their labor, Arresting in the arms of God. The Jubilee is all about where is your trust placed? Resting in the arms of God. A placing of themselves and their fortunes in God's hands. Any selling and buying of property was to be done fairly. If debt had caused me to sell my land, it was not the land I was selling, but it was the number of harvests between the time of the sale and the next Jubilee year. So in the 40th year after Jubilee, I could sell the next nine harvests. Likewise, if you were buying from me, it was harvests you were buying, not the land itself. 
All of our transactions were to be honest and fair. No heavy interest, no dishonesty, no taking advantage of one another. Well, let's anticipate another probably modern question. Let's assume I've prospered through my own hard work and wise business practices. Now, why would I go through with the demands of the Jubilee? What motivation would I have to cooperate? Why shouldn't I keep what I've earned and worked hard to obtain? And why should I help somebody whose actions were less honorable or someone whose business methods were less astute? Well, because God said, do not wrong one another, but fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. The Jubilee is not based on the character of human beings, whether that character is good, bad, or indifferent. The Jubilee is instead a revealing of the heart of God, the character of God, and reveals how God expects God's people to behave. Case closed. A second aspect of the Jubilee year was a returning to the land. If, because of my debts, I had been forced to sell my rights to the land, those debts were to be forgiven during the Jubilee year, and I would be free to return to my land and to benefit from its produce. Whatever was sold was not sold forever. As God said, the land must not be sold beyond reclaim, for the land is mine. You are but strangers resident with me. And so we're called to remember whose land it really is. It's not ours at all. We're strangers on it. We're resident aliens, someone benefiting from God's generosity. So how presumptuous of us to think that we have any claim beyond that, for the land is God's and we are but strangers resident with God. Now, for those fiscal conservatives among us, let's note also that the Jubilee was not a license for laziness. The Lord makes clear that we're not to sit on our hands for 49 years and then count on the Jubilee to bail us out, to reboot the system and clear the decks for me and mine. If one of my kin was capable of paying my debts, that one was obliged to do so. If I had no kinsman redeemer but soon regained my feet and had resources to pay my debts, then I was commanded to do so. And if I had neither a kinsman redeemer nor sufficient resources, at most I would lose my rights to the harvest for a time. My descendants would not suffer because of my misfortune or my poor management. Jubilee was not an excuse for laziness, nor was it an angle to be worked. It was a mechanism for preventing the accumulation of wealth and power on the one hand and the permanent loss of resources on the other. God also spoke against the charging of interest and the taking of interest in advance. Interest rates could run as high as 30% in those days and were often charged up front. God forbade that kind of practice. If a sister or brother Israelite came to you in need, you were supposed to just lend him or her what they needed. You ought not take advantage of their weakened position to improve your own. You were instead to act justly and compassionately. Why? Because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. A third aspect of Jubilee was the releasing of the slaves. Suppose I'd experienced a series of bad years and so lost everything and was up to my neck in debt. Suppose I was forced to sell off uh, the next many harvests to cover that debt. And so left with nothing, I was then forced to borrow more for food and other necessities. And then those debts would come through along with whatever interest was owed on the previous debt, and I had nothing left to negotiate with, nothing left but myself or my children. 
So having no other choice, I sold my oldest son to a neighbor for a period of time. My neighbor received my son's labor, and my debt was covered. And this was not at all uncommon in the days of the Israelites, and in fact, it's not all that uncommon today in some parts of the world. What was uncommon were the rules that God laid down regarding the treatment of Israelite slaves. They were not to be abused or subjected to the treatment given to non-Israelite slaves. And during the year of Jubilee, all Israelite slaves were to be freed to return to their former lives with their freedom and their land restored. Now, we're right to be appalled by this double standard with non-Israelite slaves being treated like property to be disposed of as the owner wished. Non-Israelite slaves were subject to being sold and to being passed down from generation to generation as property. The Jubilee, from our perspective, did not go nearly far enough, but time will tell. Well, once again, we may be tempted to ask, I mean, why would we do this? Why do something so foreign to the common practice of that day? Well, here's why. For it is to me that the Israelites are servants. They are my servants, whom I freed from the land of Egypt, I, the Lord your God. Again, it's a question of true ownership. Your Israelite slaves are not your slaves at all. They belong to me, the God who saved you, the God whom you serve. And so if I say they are released, they're released. And so there it is, a description of the Jubilee as it's found in Leviticus 25, the same year of the Lord's favor that's described in the scroll of Isaiah that Jesus read in the synagogue in Nazareth, a set of commands given by the Lord to the people before they entered Canaan, a set of rules for creating a culture of justice and peace, a culture holy and acceptable to God. And all the people of Israel had to do was listen and follow the directions. So, did they? (laughs) Well, apparently not. So far as I can discover, uh, there never really was a time when Israel genuinely celebrated the year of Jubilee. There's evidence that the seven-year Sabbath for the land was occasionally followed. Um, but not the Jubilee. That's not to say that it never happened. It's just to say that there's no evidence for it, which is kind of a lousy ending uh, to the story. Um, But thanks be to God, we're going to say it's not the ending at all. Because even though the people of Israel never observed the Jubilee year, it did remain a part of their religious heritage, part of the story of who they were supposed to be as God's people. So what began as a commandment, became a prophetic vision for the future Israel, something to be hoped for rather than something that had already happened. And it was, in part, the vision of Jubilee, which helped sustain the people when they were being held captive in Babylon. It was a vision of restoration, which carried them back to Judah and a new beginning. Isaiah proclaimed that vision, one which reminded the people of what might have been and pointed ahead to what might still be. Though it was never practiced, Jubilee remained an important aspect of Israel's story and of its hope, a hope Christians believe was fulfilled one Sabbath day in a synagogue in Nazareth when Jesus, the hometown boy, got up to read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The year of the Lord's favor, Jesus was saying, had begun, all because Jesus had come. With the coming of Jesus, God's reign had come, and the whole world would be changed in the process. Now, such a message certainly was good news to the poor. A time of economic justice was come at last. Those in bondage would be released to return to their homes. The blind would have their sight restored. Victims of political and economic justice would be set free, all because Jesus had come. And the time does tell, because Jesus takes Jubilee one step further, making it clear that God's blessing is not only for Israel, but for all people. The stories of the woman from Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian make the point loudly and clearly, so loudly and clearly, that the audience turned against Jesus and tried to toss him off a cliff. The Jewish people, blessed as they were, could no longer claim to be the sole recipients of God's grace. If they'd ever really been able to make that claim at all, all the poor would hear good news. All the captives would be released. All of the blind would be made to see. All of the oppressed would be set free. The proclamation of Jubilee, Jesus said, was for everyone, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. And it would be wonderful if that were the end of the story. But it isn't. Because, as we know all too well, while the coming of Jesus did change everything, that change is not yet complete. In fact, that change has sometimes been so imperceptible as to seem like it never happened at all. I mean, that song we just sang, <laughs> how can we sing that song? That song about um, the rich having their houses wrecked and the poor being receiving justice for the first time. Um, singing that song this morning... Uh, shook me. Um, I'm not sure I have any business singing that, or if I do, it should terrify me. Um, many millions of people are still in poverty, while wealth and power are gathered into the hands of the few. And that's true not only in the world at large, it's true in the United States of America. The cycle of poverty from debt to ever greater debt goes on both personally and globally. Entire nations are impoverished, there are people lacking the most basic necessities of food, shelter, health care, and education because of accumulated debt. Meanwhile, the rich get richer. That's us. The poor get poorer. And never the twain shall meet. So with that reality firmly in front of us, well, what do we make of Jesus' claim in Luke 4? Now, some followers of Jesus would say we're supposed to take those words symbolically. To take Luke 4, to take the Sermon on the Mount, to take Matthew 25 and all the rest of it and, and translate it into some softer, more spiritual language. That we should understand the poverty and oppression and blindness that Jesus says is ended. That we should understand those things as spiritual conditions rather than physical and material ones. That sure would make our lives easier and our consciences a whole lot less um, cluttered, wouldn't it? Andre Trachme, John Howard Yoder, and other interpreters take the harder road and call us to do the same. They call us to accept Jesus at his word and to understand that Jubilee is already come. And so what are we going to do about it? If we take Jesus at his word, then we will 
work at Living Jubilee in our community of faith and in the world around us. If we take Jesus at his word, we'll live as if the celebration has already begun and the scripture is already fulfilled. If we take Jesus at his word, then we'll live in anticipation of the day when the restoration will be complete and God's redemption of the world and all that's in it will at last be finished. For our congregation, accepting Jesus at his word has meant joining in the work of Jubilee USA Network and supporting the work of debt relief and the restoration of a more sane and just economic arrangement in the world. Even as we acknowledge that the U.S. is certainly not ancient Israel, we nevertheless claim that the Jubilee vision does reveal something about God's desire for how people should live in relationship to one another, in relationship to the land, in relationship to God, and how nations ought to behave not only toward their own citizens, but also toward other nations. The Jubilee vision, a vision that Jesus proclaimed as being fulfilled in his coming, motivates or should motivate our congregation and Christians around the world to seek and envision a more equitable economics. At a more fundamental level, accepting Jesus at his word means remembering that the world and everything in it, including ourselves and every other human being on the planet and the planet itself, all belongs, first of all, to God. I mean, if we would just believe that one thing, if we would just believe that one thing, my goodness, it would be a different church, I think. It's the Lord who is our God. It's in God that we're supposed to be placing our trust and our hope and our faith and our lives. The earth and its fruits belong to God and are not ours. They're not ours to hoard. They're not ours to exploit. They're certainly not ours to destroy. We didn't free ourselves from captivity. We didn't call ourselves into being. God did these things. And accepting Jesus at his word means remembering that always. It means remembering that we are God's servants, servants who have been set free and so called, commanded to seek the freedom of other servants, other slaves, no matter where their oppression exists. If I understand Jesus correctly, accepting him at his word means remembering that Jubilee has already come and that it's our privilege to live as if that were true, as if we believe that thing. It means remembering that we're called to live lives of compassion and justice-making. We ought to be troubled. We ought to be worked up. bringing good news to the poor, proclaiming release to the captives, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, and the year of God's favor in everything we do and say. Sisters and brothers, I really wanted this to have a happy ending. <laughs> Despair serves no one well, including God. But we are called to something mighty high, mighty hard here, I think. And our involvement with the Jubilee USA Network is a piece of maybe our response, a move toward greater faithfulness among us. And so I'm grateful that we're part of that. But we sing that song, and I hear Mary, and she's talking to me, and she scares me, I have to confess. This high and hard call.
calling is ours if we take Jesus at his word. I know I need a lot of courage. And so I pray that God will give me that courage and I pray that God will give us that courage and the strength to keep on listening, to keep on singing, maybe singing ourselves towards something more faithful, to keep listening and following Christ's call no matter where it may lead us. And one day I pray, one day I pray we will be able to say right along with Jesus, today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. May God make it so, because I sure can't by myself. May God make it so. Amen.